Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of the Awesome Algo podcast. Today's guest is Stefano De Angelis, and he is a solution architect from Algorand with PhD in cybersecurity. And uh, Stefano has a lot of experience in software engineering and has a very strong academic background that will allow us to do a very interesting uh, episode that covers a history of consensus protocols. Uh, and to be more precise, I would rather say it's uh, a rather higher level overview of the brief history because there's just too many awesome things that's happened over the past 50 years. So we can't uh, cover them all, but uh, we'll do our best. Don't expect us to dive too deep into the details, but uh, essentially the goal of this episode is to highlight um, the fascination with the the overlap in between the field of uh, distributed systems and fault tolerance systems and how both of those contributed a lot to um, consensus protocol design. And with that, uh, I would like to give uh, the stage to Stefano and let's start with the introduction essentially. And if you could uh, tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit about yourself and what was sort of the first domain of computer science that uh, sparked your interest the most. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Hal, first of all, for inviting me in this great podcast. Uh, I'm super excited. So, yeah, let me give you a brief introduction of myself and also about my background. So, I'm Stefano De Angelis, as you said. Uh, I work at Algorand as a research solution architect. I'm Italian. So I spent my almost uh, the most part of my life in Italy during my education studies. And as a background, I studied uh, engineering, engineering of computer science for my bachelor degree at the University La Sapienza in Rome. So during my, my, my first degree, uh, I was also working as a, a full stack software engineer in a, in, a, in a company in Rome, in a digital company. And I was almost doing something like uh, web application developments and also mobile applications development for Android uh, OS. So my background was mainly the first programming language I had was uh, Java. Uh, and it was okay. I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. But at the end of my bachelor, I said, okay, Maybe programming is not what I really like for my for my future. So in my master, also done in Rome at the University of Sapienza, I decided to take uh, to deepen uh, topics like cybersecurity and distributed systems. Why these two topics? <laughs> well, because at that time it was the rising of uh, cloud computing, and cloud computing was quite fascinating for me. Because I was questioning, like, uh, why these systems, quite complex, can ensure reliability and full tolerance, thanks for replication, uh, and help people to consume services in a such efficient way. So uh, I was very interested in this stuff. So I said, let's try to deepen distributed computing. And eventually during my master, I, I came up with a, an amazing book called uh, Reliable and Distributed Programming, uh, written from the professor uh, Christian Kashin, University of Bern, Switzerland. 
And this book was great because it introduced the, the problem of distributed systems, the basic sort of problems of distributed systems, like how messages can be broadcast in a distributed network, uh, how shared memories uh, uh, works across replicas, and of course, the problem of uh, consensus protocols. So this was my first approach uh, to distributed systems, and that's my main uh, research uh, area. I will make sure to include the links to the uh, to the resource as well. I think it's a it's a great book. Um, and going going a bit further, uh, nice nice reference with uh, with Java. By the way, I think it's a, it's a great uh, programming language to dive into object oriented programming. Um, so you mentioned uh, the pursuing of the degree at the University of Sapienza and um, the PhD at the University of uh, Southampton. How do you think uh, the experience of pursuing the degrees there shaped your you know academic background, your future goals and aspirations? Yeah, let me tell you the big story. So uh, University of Sapienza is probably one of the largest or the largest university in Europe. And there is this big faculty of engineering. It's very uh, an old faculty, just close to the Colosseum mm -hmm. in Rome, uh, full of history, full of uh, a lot of scientists uh, studied there. Uh, because there is uh, all the faculties of engineering, so electronics, um, mechanics, engineer, computer science, and, and and all of them. So I had the chance to improve my bad skills in math there. <laughs> so it was quite uh, helpful for me. But so I had the chance to work with brilliant colleagues and professors. So I collaborated in this research group of cybersecurity there. Uh, and from the contacts uh, I, I had a chance to, to get there, I, uh, one of the professors offered me the possibility to go abroad for my final project of my master's thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, I, won the, I won a scholarship at the time, so I had the possibility to go abroad. And the professor I met there and the, in the research group in Rome, he offered me this possibility with Southampton. Southampton is a city in the UK, uh, south uh, mm -hmm. of the UK. And uh, University of Southampton uh, is quite a good, uh, very big and good university because it's part of a Russell Group, which is a, a list of twenty-four, uh, the best twenty-four universities in the UK. So <laughs> there, uh, I was super excited to, to join the university, and then uh, I, I moved uh, to Southampton. I joined the, the cybersecurity research group in the Southampton University, which is um, an academic center of excellence for the, the research in cybersecurity. And there, the, the people working there were interested in distributed computing, security, and blockchains. So during my experience uh, at the University of Southampton, I had the chance to work on various projects, mostly related on cybersecurity uh, and blockchains. But the fascinating thing is that uh, the university was extremely exposed to institutional and military sectors. So I had a research from a theoretical point of view for blockchains and distributed systems, but then I had the chance to put things in practice with uh, practical projects. I see. Yeah, that's very nice. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, th I thought there's a, uh, there's a continuation there, but... Uh... 
that, that's that's a very interesting background and you're mentioning the field of cybersecurity um which on one glance you know it could be a, a rather broad topic to cover so um let's slowly diverge a bit towards the blockchain space because i'm also curious on uh why um that particular domain um, in, in the field of cybersecurity was of the most interest to you. So perhaps if you could also mention one of the first projects you worked on uh, specifically in the blockchain space and perhaps uh, aside from cybersecurity, what was the big fascination that got you involved with blockchain specifically? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Let's focus on um, the blockchain space. And, and you know, uh, as I told you, I, I moved to Southampton for the final project of my master thesis, which was related with the University of Rome. And uh, at that time, I was studying security of uh, consensus protocols proposed for private blockchains. Mm -hmm. That was my, my final project uh, of the master thesis. So I moved to Southampton because the Southampton group was quite experienced on blockchains. And when I moved, uh, at that time, the, the, the research group was working uh, on an European project, H2020. Uh, they were trying to investigate the adoption of a blockchain technology for implementing a federated pan-European cloud infrastructure for the public administration. Mm -hmm. So it was a big cloud system composed by for all the European uh, countries. And this cloud system was using the blockchain as a shared a source of trust for mm -hmm. the information. So in that context, I worked as a research fellow uh, for the design of the blockchain infrastructure mm -hmm. and the application use cases. So it was the first time I was coming from uh, my background in investigating from the theoretical point of view, the security of census protocol from blockchain. Mm -hmm. But then with this project, I had to put in, in practice things, starting to implement the infrastructure, and uh, smart contracts also. I see, I see. Interesting. And going a little bit, going a little bit further um, to the topic of Algorand specifically, um, because, um, well, going back to some of the insights from the previous episodes, uh, we know that it's a rather small space if we look at the total amount of uh, engineering force uh, in blockchain development in general we have up to 300,000 people total we have multiple companies uh, so there's a vast number of projects to pick um, so why specifically Algorand how did you first discover that and what about its technology picked your interest and uh, well um, made you want to get involved yeah Sure. So uh, when I moved to Southampton, there was this big European project. And the guys were, uh, to be honest, they were working with, uh, with Ethereum at the time. It was uh, late 2017. And they were trying to investigate Ethereum as a platform for the project. But Ethereum was too slow and it was extremely efficient in terms of costs for and the infrastructure. I'm sorry, which year was this? It was 2017, mm -hmm. late see, 2017. So uh, at that time, uh, Ethereum was unfeasible for the project. So we decided to switch uh, to another platform, 
which was a, a private blockchain, Hyperledger Fabric, because it was more efficient for the project and also more feasible. Because as, as I told you, uh, we were building a pan-European cloud federation. So when you build federations in uh, that time, uh, the private blockchains uh, were the, the best solution. But after the project, uh, I started my PhD and I'm talking about early 2018. The project ended and I started my PhD. So when the, once the project finished, I, I started asking me myself the, the following question. So why was so difficult to achieve scalability and security for that project? Why was it so difficult to use blockchain with a certain level of performance and security in that system? So this was a, my first research question and was quite fascinating at the time. And then I started comparing the solutions the market was, uh, was proposing. Mm -hmm. So in early 2018, there was a plenty of solution, both in the block, private blockchains and public blockchains, but it wasn't well documented mm -hmm. neither. So I decided to start studying these platforms and uh, their consensus protocols. And eventually, I came up with a, a paper from Silvio Micali uh, that was proposing a solution on how to solve consensus uh, in large-scale decentralized networks. And that paper impressed me a lot because Silvio proposed a, a, an extremely elegant way to solve consensus in such a large-scale network. So the paper uh, impressed me a lot and uh, I started playing around with Algorand during my PhD both from a theoretical point of view by investigating the consensus protocol, but also from a practical point of view. So Algorand was launched in 2019. And at the time, there, there was a, 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 some future that you, can, you, you were able to, to experiment with, mm -hmm. like smart contracts. So during my research, uh, I started uh, using Algorand and proposing Algorand also for the projects my research group were working on. For example, in uh, uh, early 2020, I proposed Algorand together with uh, my professor at Southampton for a very interesting project with the European Public Administration. So it was involved with the Ministry of Finance, the Defense, and the Social Security Institute. And uh, we were trying to achieve was um, a blockchain system for the, the, the public administration in Italy. Mm -hmm. And we designed a prototype with Algorand. And we used Algorand for the infrastructure, but also for the application use cases, like how can we can issue a loan on Algorand smart contracts, or how can we issue a, a social security for citizens on the Algorand smart contract. So it was quite in the middle between the investigation and the application use case, real application use cases. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I suppose just to just to recap for um the listeners out here the um the, the the interesting highlight from um stefano's background here is uh, the fact that um there was indeed a well indeed a research that ha has been done in regards to finding a good chain and a good consensus that can satisfy a, a very specific a very specific problem which in this case was uh the the project that you outlined and um well, going back to the dates, I suppose this was uh, 
2017, there was a big boom in the crypto market back then, and uh, it, lots of chains also specifically showed uh, the the limits of their scalability. But it's it's interesting to to hear that uh, Algorand uh, came in as a as a theoretically um, good option for the implementation, and then it showed to be uh, the case after the practical application of it. Um, and uh, any other perhaps minor things uh, or like some minor open source project or other projects uh, within Algorand space that uh, you you want to highlight um, perhaps you had a chance to work with uh, while you know exploring the chain or learning it otherwise uh, we can essentially dive into the um, the main topic of the uh, of the talk and talk about the consensus so uh, um, you mean before starting Algorand or? No, I mean, uh, mean aside from that, uh, yeah, aside from the project uh, that you worked on during the research, um, just if, if there's anything else uh, within the Algorand space or Algorand ecosystem um, that you worked on or contributed to that you wanted to highlight. Um, otherwise, we can proceed. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you got involved with uh, in the in the ecosystem as well. Well, during, during my PhD, when I was proposing Galgrand as a solution for project research project, I also jumped in as a, a developer ambassador with Galgrand Foundation. And there is, I took time for uh, proposing a couple of solutions on the Algorand developer portals. You, you, you can, I think they are still available online. And one solution was quite interesting because it was uh, a tutorial on how to build a private instance of, of Algorand, like building a side chain of Algorand in a mm -hmm. in your own on premise or on cloud. Uh, I see. Center. I see. It's like a big fork of Algorand, mm -hmm. although it's although it's, it can it's, really it's quite okay. complex. Yeah. Exactly. It was like a parallel parallel network, mm -hmm. and I built it for just for uh, research. Uh, matters and there is a tutorial that explains how to configure the nodes and the relay nodes participating nodes for for doing that uh, so this was quite it's quite interesting because you i, I had the chance to really understand uh, both the code pay, code base of algorand but at the infrastructure level how you can handle uh, commands uh, uh, configurations are required for uh, nodes communications. Yeah, I, I must agree that that's one of the uh, it's a best practical ways to learn um, how the Algorand network functions and um, also to recall uh, the guest from the previous episode, Patrick Bennett, the uh, CEO of NFD um, of TXN Labs. Uh, one of his ways to learn it was also essentially cloning the Algorand uh, Go implementation and uh, going over, you know, the intricate details of the implementation to to learn about the network itself. Um, so, once again, uh, Stefano, thanks for this amazing introduction. This is certainly setting the stage for uh, your background and experience and. Um, what I'm mostly interested in during this episode is to talk a little bit about the brief history of the consensus mechanism. So, but before we dive into it, I feel like uh, it might be important to firstly 
set the stage for the main definitions uh, for the terminology that we will be using. Um, so perhaps let's start with the uh, very fundamental questions such as, um, can you provide a brief definition of what consensus protocols are and essentially what, what, what role do they play in distributed systems? Yeah, sure. That's a good point. And uh, I think before trying to define a consensus protocol, we should define what um, a distributed system is in general. So uh, a distributed system, you can think about um, a set of connected processes that cooperate together for a certain goal or to accomplish uh, a common task, right? But from a, from a user standpoint, we are, we, are, we are used to have in uh, computer systems a server and a client. So from the client side, the distributed system infrastructure is transparent. So you, you just send your request to a server and you receive an answer. But, and you don't care that under the hood, there is a more complex uh, uh, system composed by several processes that all together they coordinate to serve your request and produce an output. So this is what the, the a distributed system is. Why we need consensus? What is consensus in this, uh, in this landscape? So these processes together need to agree uh, on a consistent state. And to do so, they need a protocol, which is, a, which is the consensus protocol. This protocol is executed in a distributed fashion, so everyone as the, the code of the protocol, and they are all uh, they they all know when I say they I mean the nodes of the network they all know how to process to execute that protocol. So the, the first prim primitive uh, of a consensus protocol is the atomic broadcast. What is that? Well, when you when you have a consensus protocol, you have these these processes that need to com communicate each other, and to do so, they need an algorithm. Uh, a protocol. And the protocol uh, for doing these communications is the atomic broadcast that guarantees for all replicas of the network that they are on the same page. So they have the same set of messages and th this set of messages is in the same order. So consensus is quite crucial for complex systems. Uh, we can imagine the, important of, the importance of consensus when we talk about cloud computing when we talk about distributed databases where consistency can be very important from for replica replicas and then blockchains of course when describing um distributed systems um there is this theoretical mathematical model i would say in, the, in, the, in this case that is uh, often often used to um build the fundamental notion on, on, on how to basically approach consensus mechanism design. And what I'm referring to is the state machine replication problem, which I think um, could be another good um, terminology to set up before we dive a bit further. Um, just if you could also briefly um, describe a little bit the state machine replication. And another important aspect to cover is where is the system that is using the consensus protocol is operating right when we're talking about networking in this particular case 
um, there is a set of different assumptions, right? We, 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 there is a uh, ideal theoretical assumptions that could be relaxing a lot of conditions where we have a fully synchronous network. Everything is, we have some sort of centralized clock. Uh, then we have more realistic real-world uh, application under which most of the uh, modern consensus uh, protocols operate, which is partially synchronous model. And then we have the asynchronous, which is uh, something that is proven to be impossible to design uh, a consensus uh, mechanism for. Um, and well, there are assumptions in the protocol design. Let's um, perhaps go over those um, terms as well. And there would be one more before we will be able to dive uh, into the proper history. So yeah, yeah, just to recap, let's start with the state machine replication. If you could just briefly define um, the definition of this problem. Right. So it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> let's try to be as quick as possible. Sure, sure. No. We need to synthesize like 30 years or more of distributed system <laughs> theory. So first of all, uh, you mentioned about state machine replication, but what is repli replication? So I, I briefly give you an introduction of what a distributed system is. So replication is quite a similar concept. So in, in traditional computers, client server architecture, <clears throat> we have the server that represents like the, the single point of failure. This mm -hmm. means that if the server goes down or there are some outages, your service provided by the server is not available anymore to the client. So that's why if we want to provide robustness to our service, we need repli replication. So what is replication? You, you take the server and you replicate your service across different servers. In this way, if the server goes down because of faults or because whatever reason, the system can keep operating correctly and the client can be served from the, the server side. So this concept was firstly theorized by Leslie Lamport in the 70s with the concept of state machine replication. So what is the state machine replication? So imagine again, our distributed network of processes and each product process is running a deterministic state machine replicated for uh, overall processes. <clears throat> in that sense, every process uh, starts in the same state and then executes the request coming from clients in the same order because of atomic broadcast. So basically, given an input to the state machine replication, all the processes do the computation and then they produce a single output which is equal for any replica of the state machine. How can we achieve that? Well, by running a distributed consensus protocol across replicas. So state machine replication is quite important in distributed systems. And it is as, as much important as fault tolerance. Because you can have a state machine replicated across the nodes, but if there is not fault tolerance, your, your uh, operation can be faulty if some, something goes wrong. So the fault tolerance is the concept of guaranteeing that a process, um, that operations from the system are served and are correct, even if some process goes down. And we call this kind of system um, F fault tolerant, 
in the presence of F faulty nodes. So if we have F faulty nodes and the system can tolerate those nodes, we call the system F fault tolerant. Of course, you will need a certain amount of honest node to keep the system processing operations. <clears throat> so in this background, then we have several considerations, as you were mentioning, about the execution of your uh, full tolerant uh, system. What we have to consider? So first of all, the network model, because we are in a distributed system and our processes need to communicate with each other. The communication happens across a network. So in, a, in an optimal situation, in a perfect world, the communications are synchronous. So every time process A sends a message to process B, the message is instantly and synchronously um, delivered. And also the processes can rely on synchronous clocks. So everyone has the same view of the time. And this is great for consensus because it's very easy to achieve consensus in such an environment. Sadly, this is unfeasible in the real world because real networks are um, asynchronous. So every replica may have a different perception of time. At each time, they have a different perception of time. Hmm. And indeed, I don't know if you if you heard about it, Hal, but there is this very nice uh, study from uh, Fisher, Michael Fisher, stating that it's a, it's a theorem called FLP impossibility, which states that it's impossible in a distributed system to achieve consensus during a certain time bound if we our replicas can make crash, so in presence of crash faults. So that's why we cannot model consensus in an asynchronous network. And that's why the, the most, as you were mentioning, the most accepted model for network is partially synchronous network. A partially synchronous network is basically an asynchronous network that eventually behave as a synchronous network. So messages eventually will be delivered to hold the honest node. And under this assumption, a lot of protocols have been de developed. And for, sorry, I j just wanted to uh, add some additional information here for the listeners and for folks who are interested in, in, in the practicality of what it means to have this assumption uh, in a partially synchronous model. In other words, you could also imagine that uh, the consensus protocol essentially has some sort of assumption on the time it takes for the message to be delivered. In, in other words, um, setting in certain cases in the simplest example we could pick is uh, let's say picking some constant t that would outline you know the time in the network under which let's say the network is being under attack or the network is uh, trying to achieve the state under which it's going to reach uh, a synchronicity so the, the, this assumption that we, we're outlining here is, is, is mostly referring to uh, the theoretical design of the consensus protocol because it's very important to outline the environment in which for which you are designing this protocol um but yeah please go ahead yeah that, that that's correct and it's very important because you from there you can you can build your protocol and the second pillar uh, of the analysis it's faults so your process may may fall some somehow you you may subject you may be subject to, to faulty processes, or maybe 
your protocol can be subverted by an adversary and act maliciously against the protocol or even being disconnected for a certain period, like partitioning of the network. So all these folds are called Byzantine folds. And there is this term Byzantine that comes from the Byzantine general problem stipulated again by the genius, by the genius of uh, Leslie Lamport. Uh, so the Byzantine general problem, uh, it's an allegory to a distributed system represented as a set of generals around a village that they want to attach, uh, attack this village. And they need to decide a strategy, either to attack the village instantly or retreat for some, some reason. So Leslie Lampert uh, explained us that um, you need enough generals to achieve a consensus to either attack or retreat the village. And why you need that? Because this general, to communicate each other, must rely on messengers. And these messengers, again, can be uh, disconnected or delayed. And again, the generals itself can be uh, traitors. So yeah, they, can they can cheat conspire. again. Yeah. Exactly. So to, 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 to achieve a consensus, Lampor demonstrated that you cannot solve this problem if you just have three generals. Or more in general, sorry for the <laughs> wording, but for more in general, you need one third of generals to be mm. Byzantine. You cannot have more than one third of generals to be Byzantine. Mm -hmm. And when we when we say uh, uh, that, let's say a node experienced a Byzantine fault, uh, essentially, in other words, we could say that this is uh, an aggregated description for a variety of different errors that could happen. Either it's a software failure hardware failure, and this also includes the possibility that uh, there is some malicious, malicious intent uh, behind the node itself. So uh, when when you hear the term a Byzantine fault, it is essentially a way for uh, highlighting that there is this array of very unpredictable behavior that can happen within the node. So a Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus is usually something that um, can guarantee a very strong um, can guarantee very strong assumptions on security if if it is able to withstand Byzantine faults. And with this little recap for the listeners, so uh, we just covered the essentially main, I would say, terminology that uh, we would be touching in the next parts. And uh, Stefano was kind enough to. Uh, provide the fundamentals here in regards to what consensus is, what distributed systems are. We covered the state machine replication. There was very nice mention of the FLP impossibility as well, and all of the all of the references to what Stefano is mentioning are going to be provided at the description of the episode. Um, FLP is uh, stands for Official Lynch and Patterson. These are names of the academicians who came up with this uh, theorem. And perhaps for folks from other software engineering backgrounds, uh, if you're familiar with CAP theorem, this is something that uh, I would say mirrors the CAP theorem a little bit, although it, ca it comes from a slightly different domain of engineering. Um, and we also covered uh, the networking models, which is synchronous, partially synchronous, and asynchronous, as well as the Byzantine generals problem and Byzantine faults. So I think with this in our baggage, we should be able to appreciate the history of the consensus now. So diving um, into 
you know, one of the first well-known consensus protocol designs. And you mentioned the work of Leslie Lamport, who certainly gave uh, a tremendous contribution to this field. Um, so any any specific um, protocols that you could highlight uh, in, 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 you know, in the early era of the of the rise of this uh, of this domain? Yeah. So of course, uh, well, the, the contribution of Lamport was was great, but we, we first need to uh, divide, let's say, our uh, story of consensus in two big families of consensus protocols. One is the the consensus protocols in the first stage of development, and I call them well, they are called crash tolerant consensus protocols mm -hmm. because these protocols are just able to tolerate crash faults so when mm -hmm. when your server when your pro, uh, replica goes down for any reason and then there is the second family of consensus protocol more complex which is the byzantine fault tolerant protocol that we will see in a minute mm -hmm. let's let's speak on crash fault uh, tolerant consensus sure. protocol so in that stage there is this big trust assumption uh, I was mentioning about a system of N participants. With N participants, the assumption is that we can tolerate up to F, which is a theoretical number, uh, faulty processes. In crash-tolerant protocols, this F is represented as the minority of the whole participants in the distributed system. So F must be uh, lower than the, 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 the half of the participants. I see. In this context, the first implementation of a consensus protocol, guess who, was proposed by Leslie Lamport in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And the protocol was called Paxos. So Paxos is a very complex protocol, actually. Uh, let, let me try to, to, to give you the, just the intuition. Paxos is, is, uh, um, implements the protocol defining three main actors, which are proposers, acceptors, and listeners. So the proposers are in charge uh, in the system to broadcast the new value to be uh, agreed by the network. <coughs> so they broadcast the, the message to acceptors and listeners. The acceptors collect the information and then send back an acknowledgement to the proposer. If the proposer receives a majority of, of acknowledgements, so a quorum in the mm -hmm. network, he's happy that everyone is on the same page because everyone has the same value to update it on, the, on their system. And then they can consider altogether the value committed on, the on their storage or whatever uh, shared memory is. Listeners are just silent nodes that observe the communications. And eventually, if something uh, is uh, approved by uh, proposer and acceptors, they agree with, uh, with the system. So they, they decide mm -hmm. to, to, to update their system to the, to the latest proposed value. In case we have something like um, uh, concurrent proposers, the acceptors may decide to update their, their storage to the latest proposed version uh, of a value in a certain round. And this ensures that 
the, everyone is on the same page. Of course, this is quite a strange protocol. Well, not strange, but quite complex. And it was very difficult for developers to implement it and also for scientists to digest it. So uh, more recently has been proposed a new version, a simplified version of Paxos, which is called um, Raft. Mm -hmm. So Raft is a consensus protocol that is great because uh, it's one of the first consensus protocols introducing the concept of leader in a distributed system. So how does it work? So Raft has this uh, leader election. Yeah. So the, the system elects one leader, and this leader is a trusted authority responsible of uh, saying to the others what's the next value to be updated on the shared memory. And the leader is the main uh, entity exposed to clients as well. So all the requests coming from clients are concentrated to the leader. Then the leader decides the order of this request and then decides also uh, which request to broadcast to the rest of the network. Since replicas um, are listening for, for messages from the leader, once they arrive, they send back the acknowledgement. So for each round of the protocol, the leader proposes a new value until the majority of replicas agree on that value. Mm -hmm. So once the leader collects the majority, he can consider the value committed. And why you always heard about majority, majority. And the point here is that in crash tolerant systems, we have this big assumption that we don't have more than, uh, than a half of replicas faulty. So in that system, you can, in, with this assumption, you can be, you are sure that if you receive the majority of votes, you are probably on the same page on the, on the, the others honest uh, replicas. And this is almost the, the two main implementations for crash tolerance protocols. But now we can dive into the uh, more interesting part, like so the Byzantine fault tolerance protocols. Mm -hmm. Let me say, spend a, a few words on why it's very important the, the concept of having a protocol which is Byzantine fault tolerant and why this is very important in a blockchain system. <coughs> so in a blockchain system, uh, there is no trust, right, in the network. It's, it's, it's per, it, it, ideally should be trustless, should be permissionless. If you, if, exactly. If, ideally, it's trustless and permissionless. Even in, per, in permissionless networks, you need, you need a, a bit of more trust, but still, you, you are in a decentralized system. But let's stick on, a, on the worst case, right? So the permissionless mm -hmm. network where everyone can join, jump in, jump out, and also everyone can just download the, the source code of the protocol, which is open source usually, mm -hmm. change it a bit and connect to the main network. And when I say change it a bit, it could be like corrupting the code and making things uh, that can be against the protocol, like producing bad blocks or producing a, a double messages. Uh, over double spending, there's an entire array of different attacks they can perform, yeah. Exactly. So in that scenario, it's quite important that the protocol, the underlying protocol of your network is resilient to possible Byzantine behaviors. And that's why it's very important to adopt uh, something like called Byzantine for protocols. 
So going back to the history of distributed systems, after the work on crash-tolerant protocols, there is this theoretical study showing that uh, there is the possibility of implementing the general problem of Byzantine full tolerant proposed by Leslie Lamport. And the way we implemented it uh, is through a protocol called Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerant, PBFT, proposed in 2001 by two uh, academics, Castro and Liskov. And this was great because they were able to implement the, a protocol from the assumptions proposed by Lamport that mm -hmm. in a Byzantine environment, no more than one third of your network can be uh, faulty. Mm -hmm. And from this assumption, they demonstrated that in a partially synchronous network, they were able to achieve consensus. So the PBFT protocol, just for giving you the intuition, works in the following way. So the idea is that we have, we still have a leader, and then the replicas exchange a lot of messages trying to achieve a certain, uh, uh, try to agree on a certain value. So in crash tolerance protocols, we have few message rounds because we don't have Byzantine behavior. So we trust that when we receive the message, this message is trustable. In this scenario, this is not true. So once as a replica, I receive a message, I also want to know you all what message received and also my colleagues uh, what message received before committing that message on my shared memory. So that's why we need more rounds of communication. And to be precise, there are three rounds of communication in which, first of all, the leader proposed the block to all replicas, and then all the replicas exchange messages in a certain way, in a certain way to achieve a certain uh, consensus over the message received. So you, you may question me, what happens if there are delays? So if you are connected and you receive some message with a certain delays, you may propose, well, this leader is not honest anymore. So I want to change leader. And that's why I can start a new process of voting, try to change the leader. And here again, there is a voting process composed by three phases where replicas can ask the network to change the leader. Mm -hmm. But even if there is a partition and nobody can communicate with each other, what happened in that case? Well, the protocol has been demonstrated to be resilient to that scenario. And when I say resilient, it means that the protocol is able to ensure consistency across replicas despite liveness. So your protocol cannot proceed. We are stuck at a certain round of the protocol, but nobody does anything. So we don't update our storage. There is no uh, change on the shared memory or whatever. So we are safe. We are all on the same page and we are stuck here. Once the connection returns and we have enough uh, honest nodes to talk with, then we can start proceeding the protocol again. <laughs> and this is quite a, a quick introduction of crash tolerant protocols and the Byzantine fault tolerant protocols. Interesting. That we so can use to today. Uh, so I think we 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 could essentially, uh, or I could eventually um, sketch a little supplement uh, to this episode. But um, 
in terms of the hierarchy that we've just outlined. So once again, we have the the crash tolerant protocols. Uh, those systems such as Paxos and uh, Raft that was um, later introduced. Um, a lot of uh, the implementation um, details there are, is, is something that a lot of big tech companies uh, are relying on, right? Because when we are saying um, crash tolerant, this is not necessarily the domain of blockchain applications, right? Because distributed systems are not necessarily blockchain only. So um, a lot of um, big corporations such as Google, for example, uh, do rely on things like Raft and uh, Paxos and some of their offerings. And essentially, this is something that I would say also powered a lot of infrastructure in Web2 space in general. But talking uh, about the Byzantine full torrents, this is uh, a, a an entire different um, branch of different problems that specifically deal with, well, Byzantine faults. Um, some of the folks who are familiar with uh, a lot of terminology in Web3 and blockchain might be curious when they are going to hear proof of stake and proof of work. But uh, I, I believe this is something that is uh, going to be covered uh, as well. But, um, you know, aside from uh, Byzantine fault tolerance, um, I think if we were to look into, in, into that research area, uh, what do you think about, you know, the rise of the blockchain technology um, introducing perhaps new ways to look at consensus design in general. Uh, we have uh, for, for the longest time there there has been a lot of innovation on consensus protocols that were based uh, on the Byzantine fault tolerance. But talking about things such as uh, proof of work, which uh, in this particular case, you know, has this way of uh, embracing this longest chain rule, which is. Uh, something that sacrifices on consistency a little bit, but never sacrifices on availability in this case. What do you think about, um, what do you think about the um, way longest chain, embracing of the longest chain rules, based consensus protocols, uh, how they affected the blockchain and research space in general? And do you think this is uh, something that is still a um, you know a significant contender to a more classic uh, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus protocols. Great question. So let's try to to think about why we arrived to proof of work. Why we needed proof of work. Proof of work has been proposed uh, with the paper of Bitcoin, trying to solve uh, a specific issue in distributed systems. So we had this uh, theorization of blockchain, which is a decentralized network. A decentralized network is a special class of, a class of distributed system. Because if you think about distributed system as a cloud infrastructure, you still have a central authority in control yeah. of your distributed system. So this, the authority can decide the number of replicas, can decide who is joining. And so in that situation, a protocol like Paxos, as you were mentioning, is perfect. Uh, it's very efficient and you are happy with that. But if we think about a decentralized network, it's quite different, right? Because the scale of your, of your system is very large. And also everyone can join in or can, can, can leave the network uh, as yeah. they want. So in, in that situation, how do we achieve consensus? 
So basically, how do we elect the leader? So we don't have control because maybe I left you as a leader, but after I elect you as a leader, you leave the network. So there is a problem there. So in a decentralized system and in blockchain space, the proof of work was great. Was great because you introduced the concept of randomly select leaders to propose new blocks, propose new messages. And the randomness was given by the, the solving of a, comp of a mathematical puzzle, which was quite hard to solve and required a lot of computation, mining. We, we all know about mining. Mm -hmm. uh, when the solution was found, then the, the, the proposer, the, the, the node that found the solution was the proposer of, of, the, of the block. So such a puzzle is so difficult to solve that it's quite uh, improbable having two nodes, so two miners, solving the, the problem at the same time. And that's why, imagine we are in a network, I solve the problem with a certain probability, then I can spread the block I solved throughout the network. But what happens if me and you are lucky, guys, and we, we, all decide, we, we find the solution at the same time? Mm -hmm. So I start proposing the block uh, I solved to my neighborhood, and you start proposing the block you solved to your neighborhood. And in that case, there is a big issue because the network starts to be partitioned, not in terms of communication, but in terms of uh, uh, consistency of their storage. And now that we switch to blockchain, when I talk about storage, I'm just talking about the ledger. So in that case, we need a, a certain rule uh, that governs our system, and then that says to your neighbors or to my neighbors which block they, they need to, to adopt. In Bitcoin, we have this rule of the longest chain, mm -hmm. which is let's keep pushing on the same ledger until, there is a, um, until you receive messages. Uh, you can consider a block finalized if there is six blocks in front of him that are, have been uh, committed. Because in that case, it will be quite hard to revert the chain and uh, remove that block from the, from the chain of, uh, of the network. So proof of work is great. It's great for random election of leaders uh, in decentralized system. The problem is that it was inefficient. Why is it inefficient? Because the more your network grows, so the larger is your network, the more difficult is the puzzle to be solved. Because it's, if it's, it's the puzzle is, it's easy to solve. Miners will be um, uh, will be easier for miners to solve the problem, and then yeah. you might have a lot of uh, uh, concurrency in block proposal. But if it's so difficult, it will be very slow as well. And I'm not talking about the energy demanding, of course, of mining process. So proof of work is great, but it wasn't like uh, a solution. For, for, it's a good solution probably for Bitcoin, but maybe it's not a good solution for smart contract platforms or for decentralized computation. And also there is a big issue we were discussing uh, before about that, which is the, the problem of proof of work tend to be centralized. Uh, what's, what's, what's the point here? Well, since the, this, the solving the mathematical puzzle is quite hard, nodes tend to converge to, 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 to put the force together in order to, to improve their computational power. 
And uh, this is the, the phenomenon of mm-hmm. mining pools, where people try to, to put the, their forces together in terms of computation, trying to, to achieve the, 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 the proof of work. Mm-hmm. And if you have like three mining pools that uh, conver- where converge all the mining power uh, of the world, probably these mining pools are controlling your network. And you might, have, you might not be happy to that for that. So this is the, the, the point of, uh, of proof of work, and that's why proof of stake arrived. <coughs> Let's talk a little bit more about uh, proof of stake, but just uh, a, a quick recap of what you just said in regards to uh, longest chain of rules. So as um, Stefano just outlined, despite being a great innovation in regards to introducing randomness for the selection of the nodes uh, and having this idea to have a, an economic incentive um, was certainly an innovative idea for a chain that didn't have a need to also run, um, you know, during complete computation and smart contracts on it. Um, but in, in, in other words, in real world, uh, after Bitcoin essentially uh, started running for many years, uh, what a lot of people saw over the years is the uh, centralization of um, of of control over over different mining pools. So um, essentially, if you, if you put an economic incentive on compute, uh, eventually you will see your network uh, slowly becoming uh, centralized because uh, there is only so much uh, players that can you know allocate so much resources to pay for this compute, um, and which leads us to proof of stake, which is an interesting alternative. On that, we covered a lot uh, of the terminology for um, proof of stake in the previous episode, so um, feel, uh, don't don't be constrained, you know, setting up the stage for it. Um, but uh, yeah, let's uh, let's talk a bit about uh, proof of stake now and uh, what was the main innovation there and. Uh, I suppose um, there there has been some things from the proof of work that uh, certainly uh, served as a as an inspiration. Yeah, yeah. So proof of stake uh, replaced the computing power uh, required for leader election in proof of work with stake. What does it mean? Well, we don't have miners anymore here, but we have validators. So we have these nodes that are in charge of participating in the consensus protocol. How do we select these nodes is the big problem of proof of stake network. So first of all, the nodes entitled to be validators are the ones that um, are willing to commit some stake, some of the uh, worth in terms of stake uh, to the network. There are some limitations. The, the first limitation, uh, I will split the problem in two parts. The first part is leader election. So once you have these validators, you need to elect one leader. And once you elect the leader, you need to achieve consensus on the message the leader is proposing. <clears throat> these are two big problems because let's bear in mind that we are in a decentralized network, which is a very large network. So if we go back to the PBFT, so the Byzantine Fault Tolerant Protocol and the implementation, uh, we know that we can achieve consensus in such a, an environment. The problem of Byzantine Fault Tolerant Protocol is that they require a lot of messages to be exchanged by, by, pro, by, by processes. So if we are in a decentralized network with thousands, hundreds of thousands of nodes, Probably it will take very a lot of time 
So although your validators are committing their stake and they can join the network, probably it will take ages to achieve on consensus protocols. There are some solutions that has been proposed. So there are different variants of proof of stake. The first variant is bounded proof of stake. In that case, the stakeholders lock their funds and for each fund, they got like voting rights. With these voting rights, they can select validator nodes that can be elected as a leader. The node with more, with more votes is the leader and this leader will just propose the block to the network. <clears throat> An alternative to that, just to reduce the complexity of leader election, is the delegated proof of stake. In the delegated proof of stake, you don't have a, a lot of validators. You just have a small set of validators, like hundreds of validators, 200 of validators, 2,000 validators, I don't know. And these validators are known by the network. Stakeholders may decide to either build its own validator or may they decide to commit their stake to the validator, delegate some stake to a validator. Why do they want to do that? Well, because validators with more stake have the possibility to be elected as leader. And the validator with large stake can propose the blocks and dominate the network. But maybe it sounds to you something like centralization again, because you are centralized to few the power of many. Yeah. So this is probably a trade-off, right? We need to do that because BFT protocols are so complex in terms of message exchanges that we need to reduce the problem in a smaller scale. But if we think about proof of work, there is the concept of randomness. And both in bounded proof of stake or delegated proof of stake, I haven't mentioned about randomness. Although some solutions are trying to adopt randomness to select leaders, mm -hmm. but I haven't mentioned about it. In Algorand, there is the, the, the pure proof of stake algorithm. What does it mean pure proof of stake? So the idea behind that, so the idea behind the, the paper proposed by Silvio, is that solving uh, the consensus requires uh, a leader election fair. A fair leader election means that everyone can join the network and can be elected as a leader. And to do so, they have the there is not special validators committee or something like that. There is just everyone that have some stake can be elected as a leader. The likelihood to be elected as leader is proportional to the stake you have in your wallet. Mm -hmm. But you are not committing that stake to any validator. You are not delegating the, the stake to others. And the, the, the idea of randomness is that these leaders are elected randomly from the, all the stakeholders in the network. The random election is governed by a cryptographic function called the verifiable random function. And the idea behind that is the same idea of proof of work with mining. You do some work, some computation, you obtain a result. This result eventually gives you the winning ticket of a lottery. With proof of work, we do that with mining. In pure proof of stake, you do that with verifiable random functions. You can run this verifiable random function with your, uh, with your stake. <coughs> and eventually, you are elected as a leader. When you are elected as a leader, as in proof of work, you can spread the, the, the block you want to propose to the network. 
Another is the second phase of proof-of-work consensus protocols, which is the agreement on the message you receive. So in bounded proof-of-stake and delegated proof-of-stake, you just receive the message from the leader and you commit the message. Like, I trust the leader because has been elected by the stakeholders. I will commit the message. Then if, if there are two leaders at the same time, probably there will be a fork in your network. And we can, uh, we can, uh, we can use the longest chain rule or something like that mm-hmm. to eventually agree on a, on a consistent state. But in pure proof of stake, what happened is that once the leader is elected randomly with a verifiable random function, then there is a committee of nodes, again, selected randomly, that run a traditional Byzantine fault-tolerant protocol, as I explained to you before, so with three stages, message exchanges. Exactly. What does this? This committee, what it does, is just validating and verifying the block received by the leader. If everyone agrees on that, on that block, then the block can be considered uh, committed on the chain. And if that's the case, there is no fork, right? So if the committee accepts the block, the block is, is committed uh, on the blockchain. And this is probably the best way to, 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 to achieve consensus uh, in a very large scale network because you are still reducing the problem, having a large number of nodes, but reducing to a committee but the committee is randomly selected as the leader is. And we use randomness for, for that reason. And I, I uh, really like the fact that uh, one of the interesting innovations that um, the pure proof of stake is also introducing is the fact that the selection of the proposers and the selection of the of the members of, of, of that committee uh, are happening through the VRF that, that is actually... Uh, executed offline. It's a very cheap cryptographic operation. If you compare it with, for example, um, well, running um, running your uh, mining uh, mining pool to uh, <laughs> sp- exactly. you know with, with, with massive point. racks of GPUs and ASICs. Uh, but uh, yeah, the beauty of cryptography in this particular case is that it's a oh one constant operation. You can run it locally. Um, but then once you actually have the result uh, at this point, as outlined and different um, keynotes that Professor Mikali was also doing. Uh, at this point, it's pretty much uh, equivalent of uh, putting something on Wikileaks, right? We have a lot of, uh, we have the gossip protocol nodes are uh, using the gossip protocol to spread the message. And once you actually have the result, there's no point to attack it because because it's already spreading over the network. Um, so I think, yeah, that uh, that aspect of uh, having the ability to cheaply execute it without actually revealing the result until you have it uh, was also a very interesting um, application of the pure proof of stake. And to and to continue with that, and once again, thanks for for the great coverage here. I, I think we indeed did cover a, a very big branch of different consensus mechanisms and uh, I think it's important for the listeners out there to understand the importance of uh, the terminology and the foundational primitives that are required for you to understand the consensus and I think it's it's a heart of any blockchain so if you're studying trying to deal with some particular blockchain project it's very important to firstly understand the consensus and if we are to continue with it. Uh, so we we did cover a lot of different 
innovations that ha have been happening ever since uh, the works of Leslie Lampert and uh, Paxos Protocol. Um, g given your um, experience in the research, uh, what do you think is the current state uh, in in the field in general, the field of consensus protocol design, and where do you think uh, the field is headed uh, in the future? What do you think is the biggest challenge, essentially, for the, uh, the, the current state of the science? So, I think before blockchains, we were um, in a sort of plateau, so we reached the optimal, uh, actually the, op the acceptable uh, level of uh, efficiency in a distributed system. But then blockchains arrived with decentralization, uh, and the problems uh, were a lot. In terms of uh, efficiency and security, there are a lot of trade-offs there. Uh, I think with the pure proof of stake, we are in a good stage because if you if you think about the concept of randomness for electing leaders uh, that we adopted at Algorand, now a lot of blockchains are switching to that concept as well. For example, in Cardano, there is mm -hmm. the concept of randomness, but also Polkadot, they are adopting VRF uh, for electing leaders. Mm -hmm. So we 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 are like to uh, in a standard. Uh, or at least for the blockchain space. In my opinion, but there is a lot of uh, work to do for the improvement of, of scalability because networks will, will be larger and larger and it's always more complex to achieve consensus. Even if we, we, we create small committees and we simulate, um, we try to, to simulate the whole network with a, with a random, random elected committee, still will be complex to 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 proceed with the consensus there. So I think that there is a lot of improvement uh, uh, in terms of uh, performance and security uh, trade-offs. Of course, the consensus protocols in the future maybe will be more performant because of Algorand, for example, we can produce final, finalized block in 3.7 seconds on average. So I think there is a lot of uh, uh, improvement there as well. And another field that I think it's very interesting is the cross-chain communication, right? So I, I imagine that in the future, we might have uh, an ecosystem of blockchains. There is some work on there, but something more smooth, more flexible, something that can be very easy to use in terms of, I don't know, I like the toolkit proposed by Halgorand, but I also want to use something on Cardano. And these are completely two different ecosystems. Now we are, uh, trying to implement bridges, and in Algorand we are doing well with state proofs. But I think there is a lot of improvement from the consensus part. So what if I have uh, a protocol that enables direct communications, enable, enabling consensus between uh, different worlds, let me say. So the world of, of uh, Algorand and the world of another chain. What if I, I do have a consensus there? How can I achieve the consensus there? What's the complexity of the consensus there? I think this is a good uh, uh, a good point for the research field in the in the future. Yeah, I would definitely agree that. Uh, I, I also personally think that there is going to be a lot more uh, research and, uh, of course, practical applications in collaboration in the space because I think uh, that's that that's the big factor for. Um, for succeeding and for 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 the blockchain to essentially reach the uh, adoption levels that 
can provide a lot of value and uh, it's not necessarily just competing with each other it's uh, setting uh, the good standard for, uh, for for the competition by actually you know collaborating on standards collaborating on protocols that will unblock uh, cross-chain collaboration and certainly great efforts being done uh, by Al Grant with the announcements this year done in regards to the state proofs as well as state proofs allowing for the post-quantum security. Um, so with that, I think I think this has been a pretty much a great coverage of a, hopefully we uh, didn't uh, board some of our listeners by diving too deep in some of the aspects, but uh, I can assure you this, this is as high level as we can go. Uh, and essentially this should, th th this should ideally spark some interest in regards to the you know the variety of different things that are happening uh in in, in this particular space at the moment um before we proceed to the final question um i wanted to highlight one question that uh, was asked on the ask osomalgo this is uh, a platform where listeners can essentially ask questions uh, by submitting questions on the algorand blockchain so there was one particular uh question i wanted to ask um which is let me read it right now actually so what are other prominent alternatives to bft and longest chain rule-based consensus protocols that are popular these days in your opinion so we mentioned bft we mentioned chains that base on uh, longest chain rule but uh, i believe there are some particular exotic um, consensus protocols being uh, designed and uh, researched as well um, any particular protocols that you can highlight um, that are, you know, could be in the minority, but in fact are complete, um, you know, alternatives to what we've just uh, outlined in, in the discussion? Well, something that is, uh, we discussed about different approaches to consensus in blockchain uh, when I talked about proof of work and proof of stake. Uh, and in particular, for proof of stake, we have this concept of uh, leader election with the randomness mm -hmm. or with mm -hmm. uh, other other kind of uh, models. And in that part, we do have uh, protocols like Polkadot that or Ethereum as well with Emerge that they are adopting a proof of stake. They have a sort of BFT protocol to achieve consensus, and then they they also adopt the longest chain rule because they might have forks in the network. And so they need a way to, to, to reconfigure, to, to, to converge to the same state. And there is this protocol called Ghost Protocol that enable, let's, let's say the model, the longest chain rule adopted in Bitcoin, but in a proof of stake environment. But still we are talking about longest chain, we are talking about BFT. Something that it was very different from my uh, experience uh, and it's fascinating, I admit, is the protocol behind Avalanche. Avalanche is a layer one blockchain like uh, others I mentioned here. Mm -hmm. And they are trying to propose something new, very efficient as well, because they propose a protocol uh, that probabilistically accepts uh, a consistent state across the replicas mm -hmm. just by observing a, a, a local a local. Uh, uh, view of transactions. So, just uh, just uh, the intuition there. Intuition is that if I'm a node and uh, uh, I receive uh, transactions, 
Then with a certain probability, there is a threshold that tells me that after the, 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 the threshold, I can consider the transaction to be accepted by the rest of the network and finalized. It's a sort of Byzantine fault tolerant protocol and it's a sort of longest chain rule, but with a different approach based on uh, direct acyclic graphs. So it's quite an interesting protocol as well. I see. Well, I will certainly make sure to highlight that uh, particular answer to uh, the person who asked this question. Um, to continue on the final part, this is um, something that uh, is being asked to all of the guests of this uh, podcast, but uh, I, I usually tend to ask on... Um, you know, there, uh, some listeners of this podcast are aspiring engineers who may not be familiar with the blockchain development, but would like to get into. Um, is there any advice that uh, you can give for, um, you know, aspiring engineers who want to try their hands on blockchain development um, on Algorand or get into, let's say, Web3 space in general? So uh, I hope I will differentiate my answer from the others. <laughs> But <laughs> so uh, what I really like about blockchain, it's a fascinating industry, right? And what I really like is that the technological foundation of blockchain is very, uh, there is a lot of uh, topics that involve blockchain. So we talk about cryptography, we talk about distributed systems, we talk about telecommunications, economy, uh, a lot of things. So almost everyone, can jump in and start uh, be, and be involved in the, in the ecosystem. Apart from that, from um, a technological point of view for engineers, there is much more we can do, right? Because there are toolkits, there are um, SDKs, you can start developing smart contracts very easily because the tools are improving a lot. For example, in Algorand, if you want to be involved, it's very easy because there is plenty of resources on the Algorand developer portal and get to start the tutorial. I mentioned about the contributions from the uh, developer ambassadors there with a lot of examples of real use cases that you can build with Algorand using Algorand smart contracts, using standard assets, and all the, the technology that Algorand proposed. And it's quite straightforward because if you're an engineer and you are a software engineer, um, you go there, you start playing a bit. So my, my, my suggestion is, Try to understand the fundamentals of the technology. Try to understand what you are doing because we are changing the paradigm here from traditional client-server applications to decentralized applications. And then try to develop things using the resources you can find online. And get in touch if you want because I'm more than happy to, to help everyone. Awesome. Well, Stefano, I think this has been a great episode. We did cover a lot of topics. I I hope that uh, this episode is going to, you know, highlight some of the aspects uh, from the, I would say, theoretical angle that is not uh, something that is brought up too often in the conversations uh, because, you know, most of the time it's, it's, it's a lot of um, industrial, I would say, uh, angles in regards to explaining what blockchain is as well as uh, more i would say practical or uh, development specific angles but uh, this was essentially to show that a lot of a lot of work that has been done is 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 built on 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 the is built on very strong 
theoretical background uh, that started in the 80s essentially since since the branching out of the distributed system protocols such as Paxos. And with that, uh, thank you for listening and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.